Welcome to the Life Christian Church Podcast, where our mission is to inspire people to the life God dreams for them as we spread His love in ever-widening circles. This is the fifth week of our parabolic series where we're teaching through the parabolic teachings of Jesus. The parable of the prodigal son, or as I and many others prefer to call it, the parable of the compassionate father and his two lost sons, is perhaps the most famous of the parabolic teachings of Jesus. And it begins, of course, with these famous words. There was a man who had two sons. There was a man who had two sons. Immediately, those words arrest my attention, and I am moved by them. I am deeply moved by them. Why? Well, first of all, I know the rest of the story, as do most of you. I know what's coming. There was a man who had two sons. Secondly, I am a man with two sons and a daughter. So when I read these words, I feel the passion Jesus surely intended to convey. Here was a man who felt the indescribable love and irreplaceable responsibility of a parent. There is simply nothing like the unique passions involved in having children. This story is about a man and his two sons, each of them, each of the sons, lost in their own way. And by the way, uh, let me uh, pause to give you a little family update. I give this to you because many of us have been in a relationship for many, many years, and this is something you should know and would want to know. And some of you are just getting to know us, and it might be something that would be good for you to know. And that is, as it concerns a man with two sons, a man and a woman with two sons, our eldest son, Caleb, is getting married this week to Lindsay McCormick. The wedding is taking place in Paris, France. I have the privilege of officiating. Most of you know our youngest son, Christian, who along with his wife, Amanda, lead our online campus, and Christian speaks here quite regularly. You may know our daughter, Summer, who lives nearby and is often here on Sundays, but you may not know Caleb, who, though very active in the life of this church through his childhood and teenage years and even post-college years, he spent a little bit of time on our staff team. He moved to Los Angeles about 10 years ago to pursue his God-inspired dream to direct, write, and act. By the way, this week uh, it so happens uh, that he's uh, guest starring on uh, NCIS. I've never seen NCIS. I don't know anything about it, but I hear it's the... The, uh, the most watched show on network television. I just hope that now that I've told you that, that it's rated G. Because anytime I ever mention that somebody's on a show, God only knows what they're going to do on network television. But anyway, uh, Caleb engages TLCC regularly. He watches, I would say, most weeks. Uh, just so you know, still feels very much a part of this church, loves this church, credits many of you and your impact in his life for his success. Lindsay, uh, who he's marrying, has had a successful career primarily as a sports broadcaster, including uh, uh, a Sunday night football, segment on Sunday night football for quite some time, now hosting the Sports Illustrated podcast, The Bag with Rashad Jennings and Lindsay McCormick. Rashad Jennings, of course, being the former uh, New York Giants running back. And finally, I'll just say this, much to me and Sharon's pleasure, they met in church 
in Los Angeles. Some of you didn't know anybody even went to church in Los Angeles. But they, they met in church. So this week, our family will gather with Lindsay's family to celebrate their new life together. And Sharon and I will, by God's grace, experience the beauty of being with our adult children and now two of their spouses celebrating our family's life together. I've been thinking about all of this and deeply feeling all of this as I've been studying this parable about this father and his two lost sons. I'm so grateful to be a father with a found daughter and two found sons. I can't even imagine the passion the father in this parable must have felt. So here's the story that Jesus told in whole. In whole. I'm going to read the whole thing. It's long. It's worth it. It's one of the greatest stories ever told. Luke 15. Jesus continued, there was a man who had two sons. The younger one said to his father, Father, give me my share of the estate. So he divided his property between them. Not long after that, the younger son got together all he had, set off for a distant country, and there squandered his wealth in wild living. After he had spent everything, there was a severe famine in that whole country, and he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to a citizen of that country who sent him to his fields to feed pigs. He longed to fill his stomach with the pods that the pigs were eating, but no one gave him anything. When he came to his senses, he said, How many of my father's hired servants have food to spare, and here I am starving to death. I will set out and go back to my father and say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me like one of your hired servants. So he got up and went to his father, but while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and was filled with compassion for him. He ran to his son, threw his arms around him, and kissed him. The son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, Quick, bring the best robe and put it on him. Put a ring on his finger and sandals on his feet. Bring the fattened calf and kill it. Let's have a feast and celebrate. For this son of mine was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. So they began to celebrate. Meanwhile, the older son was in the field. When he came near the house, he heard music and dancing. So he called one of the servants and asked him what was going on. Your brother has come, he replied. And your father has killed the fattened calf because he has him back safe and sound. The older brother became angry and refused to go in. So his father went out and pleaded with him. But he answered his father, Look, all these years I've been slaving for you and never disobeyed your orders, yet you never gave me even a young goat so I could celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours who has squandered your property with prostitutes comes home, you kill the fattened calf for him. My son, the father said, you are, you are always with me, and everything I have is yours. But we had to celebrate and be glad because this brother of yours was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. Wow, what a story. There's so much to be said about this parable, but today 
I want to focus on the passion of these three men, the deep feelings that are conveyed by each of them. I've already told you that I can relate to the passion of the Father, but if I'm honest, I also can relate to the the passion of each of these sons as well. I am sure that in my relationship to God the Father, I have been both sons in various ways at various times. So, let's organize our talk like this. The three passions of the compassionate father and his two lost sons. The three passions of the compassionate father and his two lost sons. Passion one. The younger son was desperate to leave and desperate to come home. The younger son was desperate to leave and desperate to come home. At the time that Jesus told this story, it was evidently not unheard of for a son to ask his father for his share of the inheritance before the father's death. It was unusual, but not unheard of. However, taking one's inheritance early might be one thing, but leaving one's father was another matter entirely. The son clearly didn't care about what his father cared about, and worse, he seemed to not care for his father. He left the care of his father and the concerns of his father in the hands of his elder brother. This, leaving the father, was reprehensible in the Near Eastern culture of the time. When he left home, he dishonored his father, and this was an egregious sin. It's clear that the younger son did not want to have a relationship with his father. I find it interesting, then, that the father gave the prodigal exactly what he wanted. One gets the sense that dividing his inheritance between his sons before his death was not easy. In fact, the literal rendering of the, of the phrase that Jesus uses here, that, that the father divided his property among them, literally means, in the original language, that he divided between them his life. He wasn't just dividing property. He gave the prodigal son part of his heart, part of his very life. You can only imagine the pain the father must have felt. But you can imagine him saying, this is not what I really want for you. I don't believe this is what's best for you. But if this is really what you want, I'm going I'm to give it to you. Now, if this parable is a picture of God's relationship with humanity, which most believe it is, this is telling. Because we know that from the very beginning of God the Father's relationship with human beings, He has given us the choice as to whether or not we wanted to be in relationship with Him or not. He gave us the choice and He lets us do and always has let us do what we want, or at least what we think we want. And so the prodigal took part of his dad's life and left home. And when he left home, he got lost. This is the word that's used repeatedly in this story and in those preceding it, which we'll talk about here in a few moments. When the prodigal left son, he got lost. It doesn't mean that his GPS didn't work. 
It means that when he left home, the moment he left home, he was lost. To be lost is to be away from the life God intended. It is to be away from home, away from the Father, away from relationship with the Father. And again, he was lost from the moment he left home. Now, there was a long period of time when he didn't know he was lost. He was rich, independent, and apparently, by all you know, human standards, enjoying life. It's important that we don't stereotype lostness. To be lost doesn't mean that life sucks. In other words, we think of the prodigal son being in the pig pen and coming to himself. He realizes he's lost. But he was lost long before he got to the pig pen. He was lost from the moment he left home. To be lost means not to live life the way God intended. It is to be away from home and away from the Father. And sometimes we are lost even while we're getting everything we think we want. This is why to be lost doesn't just mean end up in the gutter. A lot of people are lost sitting in the corner office. To be lost isn't to be in the gutter. To be lost is to be anywhere away from home, away from life as God intended it, away from the Father. Uh, Tim Keller refers to a Village Voice column written by Cynthia Heimel, who did a survey in her mind and then wrote about all the people that she knew in New York City before they became famous movie stars. One worked behind the counter at Macy's. Another worked selling tickets at movie theaters and so on. When they became successful, quotes around the word successful, every one of them, she noted, became more angry, more manic, more unhappy, more unstable than they had ever been while they were working so hard to get to the top. Why? Heimel wrote this. That giant thing they were striving for, that fame thing that was going to make everything okay, that was going to make their lives bearable, that was going to fill them with ha ha happiness had happened. And the next day they woke up and they were still them. The disillusionment turned them into howling and insufferable people. So we're lost if we're far from home while we're tending the counter at Macy's. And we're lost if we're far from home, if we're a celebrity movie star, seemingly having everything anyone could possibly want. Uh, as St. Augustine said, our hearts are restless until they find their rest in Thee. And this is true of every human being, regardless their circumstances. I think one of the... Uh, ways that I think about lostness uh, was inspired by the story behind the movie The Family Man. I've used this before. I actually wrote about it in my, in my first book, Live 10. And I don't remember how long ago I told this story. If I told it six months ago, I'm sorry, I don't remember. Uh, it, hopefully it's been six years and you've not heard me tell this before. I, I, I love this story. How many of you have seen the movie The Family Man with Nicolas Cage? Uh, 
All you guys raising your hands are a testament that some of us can be talked by our wives into watching chick flicks because this would. I, I'd like to tell the story and not acknowledge I watched the movie, but uh, <clears throat> I did watch it. So here's the deal. Nicolas Cage plays this guy named Jack. Jack comes to a moment of huge decision when after graduating, I believe, from graduate school, he has to decide whether or not he's going to commit to the woman that he loves, the love of his life, whether he's going to ask her to marry him and, 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 and marry her and build a family with her, or if he's going to chase uh, the, 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 the life of what he thought was success in the world of business and bachelorhood and, and all that entails. He makes the decision not to marry her, and you know, it starts off where they're saying goodbye at an airport, and he's gonna, in the old story, he's gonna come back and see her. Of course, he never does. 15, 20 years pass, something like that, and he climbs the corporate ladder. He becomes, he's at the very top of a huge uh, uh, corporate acquisitions firm and he's living a life where he has more money than he knows what to do with he has a penthouse top floor huge tall skyscraper in manhattan with windows a wall of windows looking out over the park he um he uh is is dating uh a, it seems like a new supermodel every night he uh and this is very important to the story in my mind, is driving, as I remember it, a red Ferrari. I mean, just from the outside looking in, someone without a sense of, uh, of I guess, uh, moral values would say, this guy has got it all. He had exactly what he believed he wanted. Well, one day, he has an encounter with an angel, and the angel shazams him back into the life he would have had if he had made the decision to marry the love of his life. And all of a sudden, he finds himself married to this woman, certainly an attractive woman, perhaps not physically as attractive as the supermodel every night that he'd been dating. An attractive woman who now he has two little snotty-nosed kids running around the house that he now has to take care of. And he's never taken care of anybody but himself. And he's, instead of being at the top of this gargantuan corporate acquisitions firm, he's managing his father-in-law's tire store. But the, the most poignant part of this part of the story is that instead of driving the red Ferrari, he's driving a minivan. <laughs> to which I say, those of you guys who are in the minivan driving stage, I've been there. I've been delivered from that season of my life, and I am grateful, okay? This too will pass. Anyway... Here he is. He's living in, not in Manhattan, he's living in Jersey. When you see the scenes of the house he's living in, it looks like Nutley. Just a normal neighborhood, normal people in Nutley. Fire, uh, uh, um, I'm sorry, his father-in-law's tire store, trying to figure out what to do with these little kids. And when he finds himself in this world, 
He's desperate, and he's desperate to get out of this world, and he's desperate to go back to the life he had, and he does everything he can, drives his little minivan over there, and tries to get back into where he lived in his life, but he's locked out of his life, and he's miserable, miserable, except day passes day, passes day, passes day, passes day, and all of a sudden, he starts getting a taste of what it's like to be married to the love of one's life. And she, she becomes the most beautiful thing in the world to him. And he finds himself enjoying these little snotty-nosed kids he has to take care of. And actually finds a deep sense of joy in thinking about someone other than himself. He actually doesn't even mind the tire store too much because the people there, they, they like him and, and he's able to serve them and meet a, just a basic need in their life. He actually knows his customers. He's hanging out with some guys from the neighborhood he went to high school with who are his friends just because they're his friends, not because he has money. And all of a sudden this guy realizes, wait a minute, this is the life I really wanted. Shazam. He gets put back into the life he thought he wanted. He wakes back up in the penthouse. He, he, he's desperate when he does now. He, he runs down and gets in his Ferrari. And he races across the bridge back to New Jersey to try to get back into his normal family, kids, minivan driving life where there was true love and true sacrifice and deep meaning and not all the fakery of that other life but now he can't get back into the life he now knows he really wants and here's what i think about when i think about that story we usually don't know we're lost until we've been found It's like many times I've seen people come to faith who didn't come to faith necessarily because they thought they needed it, but they came, they liked the music, they liked the preaching, but would prefer to be 30 minutes instead of 45. Anyway, they, they like it. And they, 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 they like the energy and they like the people and all they, they, they're hanging around and hanging around and hanging around and don't really even know why they're hanging around, but they are. And then it's like one day they, they wake up and say, whoa, I believe. And, and I, I, I believe in Jesus and I, 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 this is who I really am. And, and then it's like the scales fall off of their eyes. And I've seen it happen to a number of people sitting in this room. And it's like, I, I, I was lost, but now I'm found. I was blind, but now I see. I didn't know that this is what I really needed. But in fact, this is what I needed. And now I realize this is really what I always wanted. And see, that's what happens to the prodigal in the pig pen. Wait a minute. The life I really want is at home with a father. And now he's desperate to get back into that life. He was desperate to leave and desperate to go home. Here's the second passion. The father was desperate to share his life with his sons. 
The father was desperate to share his life with his sons. Jesus said, So he got up, the prodigal, and went to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and was filled with compassion for him. He ran to his son, threw his arms around him, and kissed him. I mean, oh, has there ever been anything more beautiful written in human history? He got up. The prodigal did. He came to his senses. He got up. I really just want to be at home. He went to his father, but while he was still a long way off, his father saw him, was filled with compassion for him. He ran to his son, threw his arms around him, and kissed him. So he saw him a long way off. I mean, there's not much new, guys, to say about the prodigal son. That's one of the things I realized I was studying this week. It's like, it's all been said, okay? It's all been said, and it's all been said well. It's been said better than I can by many people. You just can't beat it, though, the simplicity of it. He saw him. He was a long way off. It implies that, that, that he'd been watching. He'd been watching. He was watching for his son. And when he saw him, he was filled with compassion. He has deep feelings of love and concern that prompt him to take action to welcome his son home. Not the kind of action that typically would be uh, engaged in by the patriarch of a family in the first century and in Near Eastern culture. He ran to him in Near Eastern culture during that time. Older men, most scholars say, avoided running because... It was undignified, and because they wore robes, and as they would run, their legs would be exposed. It's just not one the patriarch did, but this father runs to his son. In, in, in any culture, we'd expect the son to run. We'd expect the son to run and to bow down and to show obeisance to his father. He ultimately does, but it's only after the father has run to him. And when he runs to him, he embraces him, and he kissed him repeatedly, it appears. That's what the original language seems to indicate, not a kiss, kisses. And then he put his best robe on him and put a ring on his finger, probably a signet ring that signified he still had the authority of a son in his home, not not a servant, put sandals on his feet, which evidently the servants didn't wear sandals, but the, but the, but the son, the family wore sandals. He, he's, he's, the father's trying to say, you're coming home not as a servant, but as my son. And then, of course, at great expense, he throws a feast of celebration. Luke 15, 23, the father says, bring the fat and calf and kill it. Let us have a feast and celebrate. For this son of mine was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found so they began to celebrate you know they slay the fatted calf to us it's like so they had steak but but it was a big deal a very expensive proposition to to take one of your calves and 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 to butcher it and you later the the elder brother says you know dad you never you never even let us me take a goat from the flock to, to kill it to, so I could have a celebration with my friends. A goat was worth about a tenth of what a calf was worth. The elder brother was saying, I even get a little bit of expense around a celebration for me being a good guy. And here you are, great expense, throwing the celebration for your lost son. But the father said, hey, he's my son. He was lost, but now he's found. Of course, Jesus is saying to those of us who get lost and want to come home that this is how God feels about you. 
You might have gotten lost in some way, but you are still His son. You are still His daughter. And the voice of the Father says simply, come home. He sees you. He's filled with compassion for you. He will run to you. He will embrace you. He will kiss you. The Father just says, come home. And then we see the Father's passion Then we see the father's passion expressed further in his pleading with his older son to welcome his brother home and to join the celebration. Passion three. The older brother was desperate to make it all about himself. The older brother was desperate to make it all about himself. Now, a lot of folks don't realize that Jesus is very explicitly telling this story two elder brothers. The subject of this story is the elder brother. We typically think about the younger son who we commonly call the prodigal. We think about the father. But the real subject, the target of this story Jesus is telling is two elder brothers. How do we know this? Not only from the story, which proves to be true, but also because of what Jesus is doing at this part of his ministry, especially in the Gospel of Luke. From Luke chapter 14, verse 1, through sometime in, in chapter 17, I don't remember the exact verse, the theme of what Jesus is teaching about is welcoming the outcast. See, Jesus, as you know, welcomed people who had never been welcomed before by a holy guy. And here he is, the only sinless human being who ever lived. And he's welcoming to his table, which was a big deal, table fellowship. You break bread with somebody. It was a big deal in that culture at that time. He's welcoming to his table people who are, who are well known as sinners. Kind of the, the, the term that's used a lot of times to describe someone of ill repute as tax collector. Not just IRS agents, uh, uh, which... Well, God bless all the IRS agents. Um, but but um, the, the, this, this was like Tony Soprano. I mean, that, that's the kind of role that, that, that tax collectors played at that time. They were thieves, stealing, bribing, do whatever they needed to do to build their own power. He's welcomed Tony Soprano, and he's welcoming prostitutes, and he's welcoming all kinds of people who've never been welcomed before. And, and, and so this is what happens as he's talking about this and spending time with these people who were sinful. Luke chapter 15, again, just to locate you so you can understand where I'm at here. The parable that I just read to you is from Luke chapter 15, okay? It starts in Luke chapter 15, verse uh, 10. Or, I'm sorry, verse 11. But the first 10 verses of Luke chapter 15 set up the parable in its proper context. And I'm going to take a moment and read to you Jesus setting up the parable of the prodigal son. The parable of the prodigal son or the compassionate father and his two lost sons is the third in a triumvirate of parables that Jesus tells here to make a point to the elder brother. All right? Here, here's Luke chapter 15, verse 1. Now the tax collectors and sinners... We're all gathering around to hear Jesus, but the Pharisees and the teachers of the law muttered. When people start muttering, you know you're in trouble. 
The Pharisees, who are the Pharisees and teachers of the law? Let's, let's keep it simple today without getting... They, they're the religious leaders. They're the good people. They're, they're, they're the pe- Mark Twain said some people are good in the worst sort of way. And the Pharisees and teachers of the law lived lives that were commendable in most ways. So we, we tend to just always act like they're bad people. They weren't bad people. They were good people fundamentally. Now, they were, we're all capable of great good and, and great bad, but they, they tried to do the right thing, but they missed the whole point because they didn't have the heart of the Father. They don't understand Jesus welcoming people, these sinners, in a way that those kinds of people hadn't been welcomed before. So they start muttering, this man welcomes sinners and eats with them. Then Jesus told them this parable. Two parables and then the parable of the prodigal son. Suppose one of you has a hundred sheep and loses one of them. Doesn't he leave the ninety-nine in the open country and go after the lost sheep until he finds it? And when he finds it, he joyfully puts it on his shoulders and goes home. Then he calls his friends and neighbors together and says, Rejoice with me, I have found my lost sheep. I tell you that in the same way there will be more rejoicing in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who do not need to repent. Who's he telling this parable to? He's telling this parable to the righteous people who've done the right thing and should be commended for doing the right thing. But he's saying, listen, guys, you have to understand the heart of the Father. The heart of the Father is I've got 99 righteous people, but one sheep gets lost. The Father goes after the lost sheep, and when he finds a lost sheep, he celebrates and says, all of heaven's going to rejoice because one of my lost sheep were found. And then he goes on and says, I tell you in the same way. He says, or suppose a woman has 10 silver coins. Now, has a woman playing the role of the, of, the, of, of, of the divinity, a woman demonstrating the heart of God? Or suppose a woman has 10 silver coins and loses one. Doesn't she light a lamp, sweep the house, and search carefully until she finds it? And when she finds it, she calls her friends and neighbors together and says, Rejoice with me. I have found my lost coin. In the same way, Jesus said, I tell you, there is rejoicing in the presence of the angels over one sinner who repents. And then the next verse says, Jesus continued, There was a man who had two lost sons. See, he told the parable of the lost sheep and the parable of the lost coin. To the same people, he's going to tell the parable of the lost son or sons. It's to the good people who didn't understand the heart of the Father to go after lost people. That's who the parable was told to. See, the message to the elder brother, to the religious people was, it's not just about you. God the Father wants to find all of His lost sons and daughters. And this is what you should want too. You're doing good things, but you've missed the Father's heart. See, you should be out looking for lost sheep and lost coins and lost brothers. See, everything that we know about the culture at that time tells us that the elder brother should not only have supported his father and welcomed his brother home, but he should have gone after his brother to find him when he got lost. So it seems like he was doing the good thing, 
by staying at home with dad and taking care of dad and making sure the family's needs were being met and, and, and doing the right things. But see, ultimately, the right thing in terms of the father was, go find my lost son. This theme of a man who had two sons is quite famous throughout Scripture. There are a number of times we could cite it, but the first time tells us so much. There was a man who had two sons, we're told in Genesis. The man's name was Adam. His two sons were Cain and Abel. And you remember that Cain got jealous at Abel, and he killed his younger brother. The eldest brother killed his youngest brother. And you remember what God said. God shows up. He knows what's happened, but he always wants us to tell him. God shows up and God says, Hey, uh, Cain, where is your younger brother Abel? To which Cain says, am I my brother's keeper? And of course the answer from God back is, yes, you are your brother's keeper. And see, the message to the eldest brother in the story of the prodigal son is the same. The elder brother is saying, am I my brother's keeper? And the answer is, of course, ever and always, yes, God says, I want you to go find my lost sons and daughters. I don't care how often you come to church. I don't care how much money you give. I don't care how righteous you try to live. See, God the Father is saying, my heart is not just for you. I love you. But my heart is for everybody who's far from home. In this story, of course, Jesus is the perfect elder brother. Right? You're aware that Jesus referred to himself as our brother. See, Jesus was the Son of God sent to find God's lost children. Jesus said, Luke chapter 19, verse 10, that his mission was to seek and save the lost. See, Jesus was the elder brother who didn't stay at home, but gave up everything to show up on this planet to find us. Hebrews chapter 2 says that Jesus said, I'm not ashamed to call you my brothers and sisters. I'm going to declare my name to you, my brothers and sisters. But see, now he wants us to go find his lost sons and daughters. Just a little pastoral word, and I'm going to wrap this up, and we're going to move to baptisms here quickly. But at the Live Christian Church, I'm not concerned about whether or not we welcome sinners. Um, to sin, by the way, when we use that term, it literally means to miss the mark. To, to, so, so when we talk about sinners, it sounds like such a bad, bad you term. A sinner is somebody, they're, they're missing the point. They're, they're away from the Father. They're far from home. Doesn't mean necessarily they're out, you know, doing terrible things. It could be. But, but this is, it doesn't, but bottom line is, I'm not concerned about whether or not we welcome people far from God. We do a great job at that here at the Life Christian Church. It's part of our culture. It's part of who we are. You know, it doesn't matter where somebody comes from or what they've done or where they've been or what they think or what, how they, their lifestyle. And anyone, it, it does, it, it, come, come on. This church for years has said, you know, we all need Jesus. You need Jesus too. Let's all come need Jesus together. We've all been prodigals. Come on, let's come home. What, what does concern me, 
is whether or not we're seeking for the lost. That concerns me. Especially in today's world where like one of the worst things you possibly can do is, is, uh, is uh, proselytize. God forbid that, that, that you would actually believe that you have the truth. But see, Jesus said that He is the way, the truth, the life, and no one comes to the Father except through Him. He was either telling the truth or none of this is true. And if He is the truth, if He is the way to get to the Father, we have a responsibility to share that with people. See, sharing our faith is part and parcel of what it means to be a follower of Jesus. Can I, can I say this kindly, guys? In in this way, we are the elder brother. We are our brother and sister's keeper. And the key to being a good elder brother is to have the heart of the Father like Jesus did. And a big part of that is we see ourselves on a mission to help people come home. See, if, if you had the cure for cancer, if you had the cure for cancer, and you met somebody who was sick from cancer, and you didn't share the cure for cancer, we would easily say that you are an immoral person. Well, we have the cure for lostness. We have the cure for lostness. And the cure for lostness is that God sent His Son to do for us what we could not do for ourselves, to make it possible for us to come back into a relationship with God the Father. And we have a responsibility, guys. We have a responsibility that when we're hanging out in the neighborhood and hanging out at work and spending time with family, and we know there's that person, whether in the corner office or the gutter, who's far from home, who's not in relationship with the Father, there should be something in us that compels us to find a way, to find a way to help them come home. Doesn't mean we'd knock them over the head and, you know, quote King James Bible Scriptures at them and condemn them. That's, of course, that's not effective and that doesn't express the heart of the Father. But we pray that God helps us find a way to share our faith. And sometimes, you know, that's just invite somebody to come to a place like this where all of a sudden they can wake up to what they were missing they never even knew existed before. Rembrandt um, painted a beautiful painting called the what it's called what's it called the Return of the Prodigal. Uh, Henry Nouwen wrote a beautiful book about this. I would highly recommend you. I read it years ago. Just quickly, you look at this beautiful painting, and and I, I asked the question, you know, where do I see myself here? You see, you see the prodigal kneeling down, humble, broken knowing now what he so desperately needs and aligning what he needs with what he wants. He wants to be home with the Father. You see the Father embracing him, his big strong hands on the shoulder of the prodigal. And then you see the elder brother. We know the elder brother probably didn't get this close, but Rembrandt put him in the picture for obvious reasons. It makes the point. You see him standing there pious and proud looking on you know, God forbid, he'd never gone out and messed up like that. But the, the reality is, we are all elder brothers. 
if we're followers of Jesus. We are elder brothers, but, but we just need to be good elder brothers. We need to be elder brothers like Jesus was an elder brother who represents the heart of the father to the prodigal. We've all been prodigals. We've all been far from home, and we should live with the humility of the prodigal, and then we should express in the way we live the love of the Father. People should feel from us warm embrace. They should feel love. They should feel, let's slay the fatted calf. Our brother and sister has come home. We need to be an elder brother like Jesus was and express the heart of the Father to the prodigal. And when we're prodigal, we need to be the one who comes home. Would you stand with me?